Is it the spies of chapter 14 or the snake on a stick of chapter 21? Or is today's story the best known story of Numbers? This is the stuff of children's storybooks, of Balaam the sorcerer being rebuked by his much more spiritually insightful donkey. Balaam's usually depicted as some bumbling, money-greedy, short-round Danny DeVito's type figure. And you could just consign this story to the odd Old Testament stories basket. But that would be to miss the really important message that we have there. Numbers chapter 22 to 24 are a reminder that God's people face very real spiritual opposition. And that's my first point today. I want to urge you to recognise that you live every day with spiritual opposition. Now, most weeks at church, you join in praying the Lord's Prayer, the prayer given to us by Jesus himself. And so you're used to praying those words on the screen at the end, this final request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to ask you, though, do you really pray that? Do you actually pray that as if there is any possibility that you could be in some ways affected by evil? Do you believe that there is actual evil around you that you need saving from? Or do you just think of evil in that prayer as a hard human experience like sickness or unemployment or bullying? Tonight I want us to see that spiritual opposition is very real and is to be taken seriously. Now, back in Numbers 21, God enabled Israel to win a series of battles against military opposition. With God on her side, Israel is invincible. In Numbers 22, the possibility of spiritual, not military, opposition to Israel arises. And it happens unbeknown to Israel, interestingly enough. Israel needs saving from evil, from an evil spiritual curse. I want to have a look at that evil now and then get real about the evil we face. Our story opens with Israel recently settled in Moabite territory, prior to launching its full-scale assault across the river to take the promised land. King Balak of Moab has seen the annihilation of his neighbours, especially uh, of the Amorites. He knows that militarily he won't be able to stand, so he decides to employ a new strategy, a spiritual strategy. Have curses laid on the Israelites to offset the obvious blessings of their God. So he summons Balaam, the most famous sorcerer from up north. Verse verse 6 of chapter 22. Come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. I reckon if you remember your Bibles at this point, you might realise immediately that Balak's plans can't end well because he's asked someone to come and put a curse on these people. But do you remember what God promised their founder Abraham? Right down the bottom there in verse 3, 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. But let's see how it all plays out. It's interesting that Balaam is not an Israelite himself, but in the story that God communicates with him a number of times. And the main point is summarised there in verse 12 of chapter 22. Do not go with them, God said to Balaam. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. At this point, I want to pause and ask if you recognise that like Israel, you too live with spiritual opposition. In some parts of the world, the fact of demonic spiritual opposition is overtly apparent. So I wonder if you saw in the March copy of the Southern Cross newspaper that we get here at the back of church, in that there were the CMS missionaries who formerly in Ethiopia, Roger and Lynn Kay, uh, last year they returned to Australia after working for 10 years in Ethiopia. And Lynn is quoted in the article saying this, it's on the screen, evil is a power, it is real, not an illusion, and to overcome it requires more than human resources. She was involved in a sort of a, an orphanage is the wrong word, but a shelter, a rescue shelter for um, neglected children in the capital, Addis Ababa, and she tells the story of helping a girl who was obviously uh, demon-possessed uh, in a quite awful, horrible way and, and what had to happen. Her husband, Roger, described an event in their church in Addis Ababa when a man started during them saying the creed. So we said the Nicene Creed before. I'm glad there were no pillars around because someone might have started banging their head on the pillar like this man did during the saying of the Apostles' Creed. When everyone said Jesus is Lord, he threw himself on the ground and he began to roar. Now, he was carried out into the churchyard, as you do with disruptive people in church. But the event split the church. All the Westerners are thinking psychological illness. All the Africans are thinking, Roger said, well, it's obviously demon possession. And he said it was amazing. The whole church, there was a really significant division in the church over what had happened. Now, an African pastor, an older pastor, a retired man, uh, at Roger's church, he performed an exorcism. He demanded to know the name of the spirit and then he commanded the spirit in Jesus' name to leave the person, leave that place and not to enter anyone else. And the man ended up actually having to burn some possessions which he'd inherited from his parents who were both heavily into witchcraft. And after that, no signs of demon possession were seen. They also, though, not to just leave it there. They needed to really intensively disciple and teach the man carefully because of Jesus' advice. You might remember it in the Gospels that it's important not to leave a spiritual void that a spirit and his friends could return to. I reckon Roger Kay summed it up well on the screen. This experience was a big learning curve for us. It was very confronting. They are Westerners and they're not used to this uh, sort of thing happening. They probably went over there not really thinking it even happens really. 
do you sort of feel it's good we don't have those experiences? I'm glad that church isn't interrupted by experiences like that, though it would be exciting in one sense. But I wonder if we're dulled by that into thinking that Satan isn't real and that spiritual opposition is just a figment of unhinged Christian imaginations. A famous writer, C.S. Lewis, he's the one who wrote the Narnia series, he has a book where he has his fictional, I, I underline fictional, senior demon, whose name is Screwtape, explain to his nephew and demon trainee, Wormwood, uh, in the books called the Screwtape Letters, he explains to him how to do the job, uh, how, how to do their job as demons. And uh, he says that how in the comfortable material West, Satan doesn't need to resort to the sort of overt possession we see in the, in the gospel and in places like Africa and Asia. He says there are enough temptations in the Western world for people to be spiritually f- complacent and love our wealth, to be spiritually flabby and to not recognise the errors in our culture's teaching. So here's a a little excerpt from the book. I'll read. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's... You think he's a demon, so the enemy's God's ground. He, God, made the pleasure. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he, God, has forbidden. Yeah, that's how it works in the Western world, isn't it? Things that are good, good creations of God, we can end up making all what we worship and what we follow and what we live for. Of course, for others of us, the spiritual opposition will be Satan using our genuine life struggles of health or finance to make us doubt God's goodness. For others, it's the good opinions of people that we most desire. And so because uh, people mock Christianity or ridicule faith, uh, we're tempted to not live it out. There's a certain oppression in the mocking of faith and ridicule of religion. But beware when the voices you listen to don't encourage obedience to Jesus Christ. Think to yourself, if he's the risen Lord, then how can any life choice which disobeys his will, as shown in the Bible, be from any source but our enemy, the devil? We need to recognise that we live every day with spiritual opposition, with mostly in the form of temptation to not take God seriously, to not obey God, to think God is in some way not good and not generous. And when you make that recognition, then you need to rely on the Lord to oppose evil for your sake. And that's my second point. Sometimes Christians who do recognise that we live every day with spiritual opposition, sometimes they can end up giving Satan more power than he really has. So there have been Christian groups which have been aware more of Satan than of Christ 
and they've ended up being marked by really unhealthy practices where they almost find devils under every chair. And so they end up accusing each other of demon possession and they blame anything bad that happens to them on the devil's malevolent actions and they lose sight of God's sovereignty in our life, even over the bad things that happen, which we find hard. Now, these Christians need a New Testament balance where you can probably name on ten fingers the places where Satan gets heavy attention. And when you look at those ten fingers, you'll find that in all of those, he gets defeated by Jesus. We need to remember that we can rely on the Lord who's beaten evil to continue to oppose evil for our sakes. And we see the example of the Lord opposing evil here in Numbers. Eventually, God allows Balaam to travel to meet Balak. Now, in chapter 22, Balaam looks impressive. Twice he said to Balak's ambassadors, I can only do what the Lord God will allow me to do. And even when Balak ups the pay offer, he still says, I can't go beyond what God commands me. But we soon find that Balaam can be bought, that the temptation of the promised wealth is too great. When God allows Balaam to go to Balak, we're told that as he sets off, God was very angry when he went. How is that? How is it the night before God says go and then the next morning God is angry when he goes? Well, it seems during the night Balaam has had a change of heart. It seems that he's thinking that he'll curse the Israelites and receive the massive reward that Balak has promised him. And so this is where God demonstrates his determination to protect his people. And it's where the spiritual donkey comes trotting into the story. We won't go over the story in detail. Andrea read it well for us. The donkey goes off the road three times because she sees an angel of the Lord blocking the way with a fiery sword. And three times Balaam beats and verbally tears strips off her. And then miraculously, God enables the animal to speak Balaam's language. And the donkey points out that her stubborn donkey disobedience has never been formally characteristic of her behaviour. So that should have signalled to Balaam that something else was going on. Now, Balaam is a sorcerer. He, He makes his money through divination. And divination is all about reading the signs from the environment or from the animals. If Balaam was any good as a diviner, he would have recognised that her behaviour could maybe be a sign from God and and tried to think about it, a sign that he shouldn't proceed with his greedy plan. Anyway, Balaam is too spiritually dull to read the signs, so the Lord has to open his eyes to the angel standing in the road with a drawn sword. And look at the angel's words in verse 32. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Pretty brutal, isn't it? But these angels' words seem finally to bring Balaam to his senses and for the rest of his interaction with 